You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Last weekend at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco, California, the Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence held the second annual Singularity Summit, AI and the Future of Humanity. Scientists, entrepreneurs, students, authors, visionaries, computer geeks, and futurists gathered to talk about advanced artificial intelligence and how it may impact humanity. If you think you know what artificial intelligence means, you might be surprised to find out that AI ain't what it used to be. Let's listen to Dr. Peter Norvig, Director of Research at Google, explain just what the singularity is. The idea of the singularity is that there's a, a point beyond which we can't predict, that the change becomes uh, so sudden, uh, so fast, that the world beyond that point is something that's unknowable to us from the other side of the point. Uh, how could that happen? Uh, well, if we, if we use the past as an indicator, it, it doesn't look like that's happening. It looks like all the technological changes so far have been gradual kinds of ones, and you're sort of seduced by it. Uh, you know, in 1900, you had a horse and carriage, and then you got this car that could do a little bit, and over the years, the car has become more and more capable. Uh, but there's never one point at which you say this is a, a sudden leap. Uh, now, the idea behind the singularity is that maybe we can build machines that will improve themselves at a rate much faster than people have been able to do. So maybe uh, artificial intelligence will make machines that can improve uh, themselves and build other machines at a much faster rate. And uh, we just don't know if, if that's feasible or not. And if it is, we don't know what's going to come out the other side. Now we'll hear from some science fiction writers speaking about this very scientific topic. Moore's Law, which states that computer processing power should double every 18 months, suggests that the next 30 years may be more complex than anyone anticipated. But some people have been thinking about this coming era of change for quite some time. The first time it came up, I was actually talking at an artificial intelligence conference in 1983 at Carnegie Mellon. And I had been invited to that conference really because I was a science fiction writer. Werner Vinge is the science fiction writer, computer scientist, and mathematician who is credited with first describing the technological singularity. We will very likely be able to, through technology, create beings that intellectually surpass humans in, in every way that uh, we think of when we think of human creativity and intelligence and insight. Cory Doctorow is a science fiction writer and blogger for boingboing.net. There's this notion that, that human history is kind of linear and that yesterday we had the telegraph and then we had the radio and then we had the television and now we have the internet and tomorrow we'll have the video phone and then we'll have the 3D phone and then we'll have the teleporter and we'll be human all the way through that. And I think that, in fact, history is a lot more disjoint. I think that, for example, things like literacy are singularities in human history, that a literate human being thinks differently and sees the world differently, so differently, in fact, that he or she has very little to discuss with a pre-literate human being from before the, the dawn of literacy, and is in some ways a different species. Writers such as Dr. Rowe and Vinji have imagined how we could become a different species with the help of the technology we have created. Science fiction usually sets these stories in the distant future on faraway worlds. 
In Star Trek The Next Generation, humanity encounters the Borg, a post-human hybrid of man and machine capable of assimilating individual humans into its collective intelligence. The knowledge and experience of the human, Picard, is part of us now. It has prepared us for all possible courses of action. Your resistance is hopeless. Number one. The science fiction vision of machines that subjugate the human race, or genetically engineered humans who declare themselves superior, are the Hollywood cliches. But Vinji imagines more engaging futures. A third way is that we develop what might be called intelligence amplification, IA, instead of artificial intelligence, AI. For many people, this is the most attractive because that means that people, as they exist now, could themselves be the participants in, in this new era. And then the fourth path that the ensemble of man and his networked computers could actually itself become something that was greater than uh, human, sort of a, a worldwide uh, meta-intelligence. So instead of the menacing Borg, imagine something or someone far more benevolent, Werner Vinge. It is interesting, the notion that if you had somebody who really, really liked you, but was a thousand or a million times more competent than you were, they could probably satisfy your wildest dream with one percent or one-tenth percent of their attention. And then they could go off and do their own thing. Vinji's new novel, Rainbow's End, is the story of the birth of the superhuman in a near-future maze of computer networks and virtual personas. It is the story of Robert Goo, a man of our time who is brought back from terminal Alzheimer's to a Rip Van Winkle-like resurrection in the year 2025. Rainbow's End could be considered to be a story that's happening right at the edge or, or during the singularity, but, but sort of unbeknownst to the players. Robert Goo must learn to live in a world where man and machine have become indistinguishable because anything and anyone can present him, her, or itself virtually. Vinji's novel shows a world in which humans and their technological offspring interact in a manner that offers hope, and he can see the hints of this interaction in current online collaborations. One feature of a post-singular world will be that the combination of the ensemble of people and computers, as sort of manifested by Wikipedia, is one that shows that it is the sharing of information, that biological model, more than this idea that we have felt very strongly over the last thousand years and longer, where you know, you're beating up on somebody and you're making sure that they can't survive so that you can survive. I think the cooperative model is actually probably the one that makes sense if you're talking about the sort of communications regime that is possible to get into uh, with computers and networks and people. And cooperation leads to the next step in human evolution. Again, Cory Doctorow. We become non-human at that point. We have a break with traditional history. It's a singularity like the edge of a black hole beyond which nothing is predictable about the way that the human race will exist. In the next 30 to 50 years, we may find ourselves regarding post-singularity humans, our descendants, with incomprehension. That may not sound like much of a change from the present. We rarely understand our children, even when they are the same species as us. As the parent of any teenager knows, there is no such thing as planned adolescence, no preparation for the tumultuous years during which children are transformed into adults. Science and science fiction may provide perspective on the technological singularity, but won't make coping with our offspring any easier to experience or to understand.
I spoke with Tyler Emerson, the executive director of the Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence, to ask just how the institute came into being, what its goal is, and how it is funded. The institute was founded in 2000 by Brian Atkins, a venture capitalist, and Eliezer Yudkowsky. He's our chief researcher right now. They met together at an event called the Foresight Vision Weekend put on by the Foresight Nanotech Institute. It's a big gathering of thinkers in the Silicon Valley area. They connected through that, thought it the best way to advance toward hopefully a positive singularity, a positive outcome with advanced AI, is to found a 501c nonprofit institute. So that's how it came about, and I got involved a few years later as the founding executive director. The ultimate goal of the Institute is to develop a safe AI, a self-improving system that would be unlike any other technology we have achieved in the past, that we can ensure the benefits can be enjoyed by all of humanity. It's a very powerful potential technology where there's a lot of fields coming together in science that are only now beginning to make it possible for us to achieve this. It's an idea that's been around for many decades now, going back to Joseph Campbell in the 1930s when he was writing about the possibility of a self-improving AI. So it's a very powerful technology, could have a lot of negative benefits. The Institute was founded to increase the likelihood that we can achieve it safely. Emerson explained that the intent of the conference is to bring together a wide variety of speakers and attendees. This year we are focusing on the topic of advanced AI and its near-term consequences and potential longer-term consequences. So we're bringing together speakers who are leading researchers in the field, venture, also bringing together venture capitalists who can look at where the investments might lie within the field of artificial intelligence in the near term, also bringing together people like John Charles L. Harper Jr., who's the Senior Vice President of the John Templeton Foundation, to get their perspective. They focus on bringing together dialogue focused on science, but that's more focused on areas of, say, forgiveness, compassion, love, some of those important issues as well, to get a broader range of perspective on these issues. So I want, wanted to invite out people who just provide a, a wide spectrum of views on this one core issue of advanced AI and how it may lead to this possibility known as a singularity. We get a, a wide range of attendees. We get venture capitalists, executives, foundation heads, students, journalists, Many scientists come out to this. It, it's really a wide cross-section of people, but for the most part, of course, right now, and which is one of the, in my opinion, limiting factors at this point in time with these dialogues, it is reality that if you look at the audience, it's all a lot of, I guess, what you would call geeks, certainly as most people would call, but hopefully it's a term of endearment for, for a lot of these individuals. I'm probably one as well. So we want to expand the dialogue so that it's, it's a wider, it's a broader audience who are beginning to take these issues seriously. Just as, say, for example, climate change is an issue, a very hot issue right now that's being taken seriously by a much wider range of people than, 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 than we're taking it seriously in the past. So that's what we're hoping to achieve with this conference. With an institute so dedicated to the future, I asked Emerson about the future of the institute. Well, I hope, certainly hope the future is bright. I mean, we are at a point right now where we have a little bit of funding from a small number of people. Uh, we, have, we have a good base right now, some initial advisors, many of them are, who are here. Uh, for example, we have Barney Pell, who's the co-founder and CEO of PowerSet. That's a company focusing on natural language search. He has a, he's been an AI researcher for quite a while. We're really happy to have him involved. Uh, Dr. Stephen Almohandro, who's the president of Self-Aware Systems, a very well-credentialed scientist. And then, of course, Peter Thiel is another individual, the 
co-founder and former CEO of PayPal, who's the initial investor in Facebook, who we have people like that who are now becoming involved with our organization, including Ray Kurzweil, who came on board as the director this year. So at, right now, this year has been very important to us. We're at the stage where we're still extremely small, but I'm seeing signs that we can begin scaling the organization to where we need to be to start really pursuing some of these longer-term goals that we have. There's an immense need for us to be working across many domains. One example is to look at the transformation that Al Gore has gone through with the slideshow that his wife, Tipper, encouraged him to give many years ago after he lost the 2000 election. She encouraged him to take it out, brush it off, and to improve the visuals of that slideshow. It's just a very practical example. What we're wanting to do is, as our, well, certainly what I'm wanting to do is my next immediate project is to work with a, a group that specializes in helping to develop a remarkable, a remarkable presentation of these ideas and to develop an accurate, compelling story that impacts people not only intellectually but emotionally and gets them interested, makes them care about these subjects. I mean, explains to them why it's immediately relevant to their lives, which I think it is, of course, why they should care about this, what impact it may have on them. These are questions that are not being answered very well right now, and I think that's why it's being limited to only people who are scientists or heavy geeks who are really interested in science fiction and so on, or think about the future, as opposed to a much broader range of people. So that's one immediate project that we're definitely looking to get involved in, and we'll be giving, begin giving that presentation to uh, universities across the country, conferences, and eventually we might be able to develop that into a full-blown documentary that really tells these stories in a powerful way, because I, I do think these ideas need to get out to as many people as possible. You know, uh, it will impact their lives as well, so they should have a voice in these ideas. Um, some of the other projects that we're looking to begin doing involve uh, what, what we're calling the AI Impact Initiative, which will be about bringing together, again, a, a broader a selection of scientists, theologians, evolutionary biologists, physicists, and so on, to begin getting them to come together in one room over a period of a couple of days and to start thinking about these issues from a cross-disciplinary perspective so that we can begin hearing their voices and hearing their perspective on these issues and going beyond simply the, the researchers in Palo Alto or in San Francisco, the computer scientists. I think it's important that we grow beyond that. So that's another project. And then, of course, we have the pure research, theoretical and experimental research that we are wanting to scale. Uh, right now, we have a proposal for research grant programs that we begin getting proposals from top students around the world to start working on these issues, and we can fund them. Um, focusing on friendly artificial intelligence, some of the foundations of reflection problem, dealing with, for example, a huge unknown area right now in science, which is how does thinking about thinking work? How does reflectivity work? You can think your thoughts. You know, how, do, how does that work? We don't know right now. So some of the, these are some of these issues that we definitely want to focus on. We'll return to my report on the Singularity Symposium after a brief break.
Now we're going to hear from some of the speakers at the conference. First, we'll hear an interview with Paul Sappho, a noted futurist. Paul Sappho teaches at Stanford University. He's an essayist and researcher who explores the long-term consequences of technological change. Thank you for joining me, Paul. My pleasure. Paul, one of the interesting aspects of this conference is it's taking place in 2006, and there's a very important participant who is not here. That would be HAL 9000 Rev 2, the non-murdering psychopath version. 30 years ago, the best minds in predictive science and arts joined together to create 2001. That was Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. Arthur C. Clarke had a track record. He, he invented the communication satellite. And yet, there's no HAL 9000 in sight. Well, you know, even even Arthur C. Clarke's ideas are not going to survive the wearing blender of the Hollywood business. And and the proof is, if you read the original story, 2001 was based on. It's called The Sentinel, seven pages long, elegant. You know, I love the movie 2001, but the short story was better. One thing that, that I found very interesting about your presentation here at the Singularity Symposium was you were one of the brave few who would actually talk about science fiction. You know, it's a funny thing about that because uh, science fiction, it turns out, for me as a forecaster, it's enormously useful because if you want to see what 30-somethings are going to be developing when they're senior managers at companies, find out what they read when they were 15. And, you know, a disproportionate number of the atomic scientists on the Manhattan Project were inspired by H.G. Wells talking about super bombs. And, you know, everybody on the moon, moon program, both astronauts and scientists, all grew up with Buck Rogers and space opera. And the most famous instance of all, 1984 Neuromancer, written by Bill Gibson. He coined this really weird word called cyberspace. And it was this little idea bomb that dropped into the pond of culture and the bubbles started coming up in the early 90s and that word shaped the dot-com revolution. Science fiction is hugely informative because it inspires people when they're teenagers into the path that leads them to build what they build when they're in their 40s. One thing that, that interests me about science fiction is that most science fiction writers these days will tell you that they're not writing about the future. They're writing about the present. That's absolutely true. Um, and, you know, speaking of Bill Gibson, his latest book, Spook Country, is very much about the present. And Neuromancer was about the present. And it's, it, that's how it always is, that we use the construct of the future as a distant mirror to talk about things in the present, whether it's, you know, uh, Orwell writing Animal Farm or Gibson writing Neuromancer. That's how it all is. Could you talk about some of the current visions of AI? Sure. Um, well, you know, one intriguing vision, I, I, I sound like Bill Gibson's book agent here, but one really intriguing vision of AI that hasn't got a lot of attention is the vision of a machine that exhibits in its intelligence by producing art. And my favorite book of Bill Gibson's was Mona Lisa Overdrive, where it turned out the intelligence appeared out of nowhere because in the international art market, these amazing sort of James Cornell-style 
boxes were appearing and someone tracked down who was making it, but it wasn't a who, it was a what, it was a com lonely computer in a space station. So these sorts of visions are the ones that I think are really compelling and much more fun than killer robots and dyspeptic computers like the HAL 2000. There was actually a Stanislaw Lem essay. It was an introduction to, it was an introduction to the history of Biddick literature. This is literature that is written by supercomputers of the future that are asked to translate the great works of literature from one language to another. They're so high powered they can't be turned off and when they're not translating they end up generating more literature that's like the authors, that the stuff the authors never wrote. Oh, that's a, I, that story's new to me, but you know, we've already seen that. We have programs out now that write music inspired by Mozart and other composers that isn't their music, but it sort of sounds like them. And this idea of computers generating original things is an intriguing one. A good friend of mine, Jaron Lanier, is not much of a fan of, of AI, uh, and he, he finally came up with one application he thought AI would be good for, and that is preservation of information, because we know information in digital form tends to evaporate if it's not used. And so he said, oh, this is great. We'll create a bunch of AIs, and we'll just have them hang out in cyberspace and have a conversation about the information. And then when we need it, we'll tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, I'm looking for this. Oh, yeah, 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 here, here it is. Well, this is an interesting thought because these uh, more specialized AI programs that are used like by musicians and by artists, it's seems possible that that may be the direction from whence the more generalized AIs that everybody's looking for would be more likely to come because they have that emotional artistic component that some of the more specialized AIs lack. Well, you know, I think it's too soon to call where general AI will come out of. But if it should arrive, I think that when it arrives, it will arrive from some completely unexpected corner. It will be something artistic or aesthetic, or it'll be some network of machines, you know, somewhere where somebody forgot to turn them off. And it'll just suddenly emerge and we'll all be astounded. And, and of course, you know, when it happens, it's, there's that wonderful cartoon in the 1950s that uh, Joseph Campbell actually mentioned at one point, and the cartoon showed a UNIVAC computer, and, uh, and the scientists turn it on, the lights flash, and and the first thing they do, they ask it a question. So what should we ask? I say, let's ask, is there a God? Question mark. It pauses, the lights flashes, time passes, and out comes the paper tape and it says, there is one now. Uh, one thing that, that interests me is the way that science fiction really has colored our vision of the singularity. And it's not been a good uh, portrait thus far, has it? Well, yeah, science fiction has colored our our opinion of the singularity and fueled the notion of the singularity. Um, and, you know, the problem is that science fiction is, is, is it's got to be a good read. It's got to be entertaining. So it can't be boring. Well, remember Hitchcock's dictum that movies are reality with the dull parts edited out. Same thing is true here that the singularity intrinsically is put in high contrast. It's either, you know, this fabulous cornucopia of of fulfilled desire or this deep abyss of, of hopelessness and 
the most likely outcome is it'll be somewhere in the middle. It's not going to be utopia. It's not going to be hell. Uh, it'll be sort of muddling through in, in much the same way that the vast promise of cyberspace of the early 90s today has matured into the reality of cyberbia, complete with the digital equivalent of crabgrass and crowded freeways and people doing boring things with, you know, bad jokes and pornography. I'm wondering if you could talk about this conference, the Singularity Summit. It's really born out of science fiction, but it's trying hard to leave it behind. Well, yes, it's born out of science fiction. This, this always happens. It's born out of passion of people who are visionaries, and science fiction is part of it. Um, but inevitably, those groups, as they exist, try to become respectable, so they turn their backs on their background. Um, the same way nanotechnology did that um, and had to become respectable by sort of pretending, to, you know, nobilities, uh, you know, the, the Japanese emperors came from a Korean background and, you know, everybody tries to forget their past and buff up their family tree. This happens with ideas too. Could you talk a little bit about how science fiction informs your work as a futurist and what you what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, well, science fiction is a, well, first of all, as a technology forecaster, the most important and valuable tool I have is a rearview mirror. And people generally speak with scorn about using rearview mirrors to predict the future. I can say after nearly 30 years in this business, rearview mirrors are great tools for looking at the future. Because beneath all the change are hidden constants, the nature of human behavior, the nature of human desires. How those things express themselves change over time, but the desires are still there and the logic and fabric of society is still there. Science fiction fits into that because science fiction tells us what's on the minds of the people who write it and also because they swim in the sea of culture what's on the minds of the people who they are re writing for. And as a consequence, a science, good science fiction book is like a time capsule from the past. And it's also a time capsule that's an idea virus that inspired people. For years, I've made the habit of asking different people, well, what'd you read? What, what's your favorite book? Examples are absolutely everywhere. That's why science fiction's useful. We've been speaking with Paul Sappho. He's a researcher with Stanford University. Thank you for speaking with me, Paul. Always a pleasure. We'll return to my report on the Singularity Symposium. And now back to the Singularity Summit, and I speak with Dr. James Hughes. He's a transhumanist, and he'll explain exactly what that means. I'm speaking with James Hughes. He's the executive director for the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies and the secretary for the World Transhumanist Association. Thank you for joining me, James. Oh, my pleasure. Your field and specialty is bioethics, and I'd like you to talk about how bioethics fit into the framework that we are discussing here of artificial intelligence. 
Well, there are a couple connections. One is that many of the advocates of this vision of uh, a dramatic uh, increase in artificial intelligence in the future, which is referred to here as the singularity, uh, such as Ray Kurzweil, who's one of the chief spokespeople for this idea, argue for uh, a model in which it immediately impacts on human enhancement. So they argue that one of the immediate benefits of this kind of increase in intelligence will be that our brains will be um, connected directly to it through nanorobotics, that it will um, increase the uh, progress of science and medicine so that we'll be able to live much longer lives. And so many of them see this as a part of or integrally connected to a human enhancement project, a, a project of improving human life and human body and brain. And that, of course, is a set of bioethical issues as well. The other connection that I see between the two issues in which I'll be addressing this afternoon is the uh, specific question posed by this organization that's hosting this conference, which is, can you figure out what are the perquisites for um, an intelligence being friendly to other intelligences? Can you figure out how to make a potential future, potentially godlike AI, uh, recognize human beings as valued and, uh, you know, some, something that they want to have something to do with? And uh, if you can, maybe that will have some influence on us making human beings nicer people as well. One thing that really interests me is your work with the Transhumanist Association. This is something, an idea that grew up out of science fiction. It grew up out of science fiction, but it also has roots in the Enlightenment. It has roots in the earliest writings of the Enlightenment. Uh, people like Diderot and Condorcet and Ben Franklin were all interested in ways of enhancing, using science and technology to radically enhance the human condition, and in particular to allow people to live much longer lives. And Ben Franklin amused uh, to his colleagues about the notion that he might uh, be able to pickle himself in wine and wake up 200 years later. And uh, Condorcet thought that eventually science would allow people to live unlimited lives. So I see us in a continuity of thought that comes out of the notion that science and technology can improve the human condition. And if you follow that to, you know, it beyond the kind of ordinary ways that it improves the human condition, then you get to things like, well, how about controlling my body and my brain in ways that take me beyond the human condition? What you're talking about is changing the definition of humanity. Um, I think there is a sense in that, and that's, of course, why we call ourselves the Transhumanist uh, Association, because there is a, a debate about whether you should reify a notion of what it means to be human and say, thus far, no farther as if we didn't evolve. Just yesterday, there was a, a study released in the BBC, um, or reported in the BBC, which said that uh, compared, comparing our brain pans to the brain pans of Britons 600 years ago, there had been a 20% increase in the size of our crania. And so, you know, just in 600 years, we've gotten, a, we've had 20% more brain in our head. And um, so the notion that the human beings circa 1950 or circa 2000 are the archetypal model that beyond which we can never uh, evolve is just silly. Um, on the other hand, I think that what many people get anxious about in this debate about humanness and transcending humanness is that they confuse humane with human. And... Um, we think that human is basically a meaningless word, but humane is a meaningful word. Humane means do you actually have a capacity for empathy, for social, for shame, for social interaction. There are lots of emotional and intellectual creative qualities that we associate with being human, which we have no intention of getting rid of whatsoever. That's not what we want to transcend. That's what, what we want to enhance. We want to become more creative, more humane. 
I'm really interested in the aspect of this conference. It, it seems that, that AI ain't what it used to be. It, when we originally thought of AI, we thought of some, something like HAL or Colossus, not necessarily friendly. And then in the 80s and 90s, we started to see more and more kind of uh, systems coming online that were called AI. And so now there's this split between AI and AGI. Could you talk about that difference? Well, AI as a field um, thought that the, that cracking the nut of creating a self-aware, something like a human mind in a box, was going to be a natural corollary income in, within decades. And it turns out to be a much more complicated uh, set of you know processes. But um, figuring out how to model specific cognitive processes, like how to control a nuclear power plant and you know all the whirring and buzzing things that go in there, or how to do medical calculations to figure out a diagnosis. Those turn out to be quite tractable problems, and already machines in many, many spheres are doing things which human beings could never have done in the past and do them you know, a million times faster and a million times better. Uh, so AI, as a set of applied um, computational programs to do specific cognitive tasks, has made enormous progress. But the field of creating a self-aware, learning, creative being in a box that has something you know, comparable to a human mind, that AGI problem has been much harder nut. And there are very few companies that actually want to do that. I mean, you don't really want to have an argument with your toaster about whether it's going to give you toast in the morning. So there are very, there's, there's a limited market application <laughs> that many people see for having self-aware machines. Um, but there are some. What are some of those applications? Well, for instance, uh, the, we have an increasing demand for autonomous machines in the field, for machines that can make some kinds of decisions. And the more autonomy you give them, the more um, like a human mind they become. So, for instance, we're deploying robots in the field in, uh, in Iraq. And uh, one of the questions that's come up is, do you want to empower a robot to go around killing humans willy-nilly? We already have an enormous problem with, with our soldiers doing that. <laughs> so do you want to empower robots to even make that even worse by killing humans in the field? So no, they say, okay, we want the robot to, to radio back and, and uh, ask for permission before it kills a human. Okay, well, that's plausible. But then what if you give it the command, okay, you can destroy materiel in the field, but you can't destroy humans. Well, the materiel is sometimes held in the hands of the humans, or the humans are standing right next to it, right? So you can imagine a set of elaborate rules that might govern all this. But on the other hand, if you, if you empowered that box with a, a degree of intelligence to say, okay, uh, this one looks like an enemy, this one doesn't look like an enemy, this one uh, looks like it, you know, to make a series of calculations, that's an increasing amount of autonomy you want to put in the field. Eventually that begins to look like an intelligent being. You were talking about the uh, creation of these artificial intelligence and just developing the rule sets for the robots of, in the field in Iraq, and your work on, in ethics is presumably front and center on that. Well, uh, I haven't actually consulted with the War College yet. I'm, I'm open if, they, if anyone want, want to call me. Um, but yes, uh, there are many ethical questions of the liability and how much autonomy we, we, we want to give to machines, who's responsible when a machine makes a mistake, and those kinds of questions. Um, in addition to what kinds of ethics are going to drive these machines. I mean, we could imagine that there could be Sharia robots, or there could be utilitarian robots. There could be, uh, you know, deontological Catholic ethics robots, and um, so that's part of the debate as well. 
there's actually a Bruce Sterling story called Voice of the Whirlwind with a, in which uh, an AI awakens that is deeply steeped in Islam. Right, that's right. And, and I don't think that that's an implausible scenario. I mean, you can imagine all kinds of moral codes um, being, you know, for instance, the Iranian uh, society, the, Egyptian, the, um, the Gulf uh, states have moral police, and they're constantly uh, trying to figure out what the application of Sharia is to different situations. Well, police systems all around the world are beginning to use expert systems to make some of these judgment calls about who to, who to watch, who to, uh, who to follow, um, what kinds of um, crimes they need to be prioritizing. And uh, I think that you, you can imagine that Islamic societies might imply some of those lessons as well. And this all comes back to what you were saying before about what it is to be humane. It's, it, we better agree on that before we start implementing these rules. Right. I mean, artificial intelligence as, as an information architecture has no implicit um, benefit or harm to society. It's the applications to which, currently, it's the applications to which it's put. The question comes, if it actually becomes self-willed, then we're in a different ballgame because then it's no longer the applications to which humans are putting it for better or worse. It's its own interests, and, uh, and that's a, a much more scary prospect in some ways. Well, what do we do about that? Well, some people think that we can um, design it in such a way that it is free of many of the Darwinian selfishness that, um, that causes so many problems for human interaction. I don't think that that's plausible because I think self-interest is so deeply connected to self-awareness in the first place. I mean, one of the first things that a, that a self-aware being does is say, how can I perpetuate my existence? You know, I need that, I need that breast milk or I need, the, I need that shelter. Um, and so it's hard to imagine how you could have a self-aware being that, you know, really fully emulated the intelligence of a human being without it having some sense of self-interest. We'll return to my report on the Singularity Symposium after a brief break. And finally, Jay Storrs Hall. Dr. Josh Storrs Hall is an independent scientist and author. His research focus is in AI and machine ethics. His latest book in press, Prometheus 2007, is Beyond AI, Creating the Conscience of the Machine. Thank you for joining me, Josh. Hi, thanks for having me. Josh, your presentation today is going to focus on something that comes straight out of science fiction, The Three Laws of Robotics. Tell us why you chose to take that focus. Well, that's really sort of the, the whole idea of the conference, is to understand how we're going to build machines that we can trust, that we'll be better off having built, and that we will find useful and helpful and people don't need to worry about. And people have been thinking about this since 
Isaac Asimov first started writing his science fiction stories back in the, I believe it was in the 30s. You talk about different kinds of moral sensibilities, and I'm really interested in this, in this notion of human moral sensibilities versus text moral sensibilities. Could you explain the difference between the two and what each one is? Well, in my book, I have a, a distinction that I make that I call formalist float. The basic notion of this is simply that when you describe something in words or in logical symbols or, or math or something, you are necessarily papering over some of the, the distinctions that actually happen in the real world. And that the, when, you, when you write down a, a, a code of laws in words, there are always people who will come and find loopholes, and when you try and cover those loopholes, your legal code just gets bigger and, and, and more complex and less understandable. And the, when, you, when you actually want to have laws that, that, that people understand and actually intend to obey, they should really be simple. I think probably the best, the best case of a law like that is just a line painted down the middle of the road because you're driving on your side and the other person's driving on his side and you really don't want to be on the other side and, and run into him. And so all the, all the line does is tell you where's a good spot not to cross over so that he'll know that and, and not cross over into your side too. If you, uh, if you try to, to do this in, in, in just plain words, you get these, these, these vast legal codes that, that nobody's ever even read, um, like you know the one we notionally live under. But in fact, your notions of, of, of what the law is that, that you obey is nothing like the, the millions, literally, of, of, uh, of words that are in the, uh, in the U.S. Code or the, or the California Code. Uh, it's, a, it's part of your model of the world in your mind, but it's not couched in words that way. Uh, it's, it's built of whatever basic underlying structures you actually use to understand the world, and um, discovering how the structures work and, and, and what they really are is one of the, the, the key uh, open problems in artificial intelligence, um, the sort of thing that we need to be able to make any machine uh, clueful, if you will, about anything. Could you talk a little bit about this conference and being here at the Singularity Summit? It's a really unusual uh, collection of people and presentations. What do you think had creates this interest here and now? Um, well, I think, for one thing, there really is uh, evidence that AI is picking up some steam. If you look at what robots can do nowadays and what non-robotic computer systems that are doing smart things like Google are doing, you'll see that uh, it's a reasonable projection that within the next decade or two, we're likely to have machines noticeably smarter than the ones that we have now. And so it, it's a it seems to be a sign of the times that, that, that something really is getting up ahead of steam and, and is about to happen. The other thing is that there's just a lot of people, uh, especially in this area, who are interested in that kind of thing. There's some sense of uh, the right people in the right place at the right time. We've been speaking with uh, Dr. Josh Stores Hall. His new book is Beyond AI, Creating the Conscience of the Machine. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. You can learn more about the Singularity, Artificial Intelligence, and the Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence by visiting their website at http singinst.org. For KUSP, I'm Rick Kleffel.
You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.